We believe that God has called us to this place and into this community in order that we might know the grace of God, that we might live in light of the truths of the gospel, and that those truths would be shown and manifested in our lives. And one question is, is that how is it that God is going to bring the hope and redemption of Jesus to all aspects of this community? And the way that he is going to do that is through the church being the church, and through individual Christians living out their faith in all areas of their life and in all spheres of influence. Over the last, I don't know, year and a half or so, um, this is a topic that I have integrated into my sermons and teaching on many of different, different realms. What is it that God has called us to do here, not only as a church, but also what has God called you to do individually? And how does your whole life, what, you've, what you do in between Sundays, how does that participate how does that participate in the work that God is doing in this world? As we've been having these discussions, one of the questions that has come up regularly as I've been talking with you is the question of, okay, I see that God has placed me here, that I'm here at this time and I'm here in this place, and God has put me here in order to, in the, to work into that, that my, my individual story is a part of the bigger story that God is doing. But the most common question I get back is, well, how does my faith actually affect my work? How does my faith affect what I do beyond, you know, what does it mean to be a Christian worker? Okay, well, I'm not going to lie, cheat, and steal. I'm going to be honest. I am, uh, you know, maybe I get to tell something about somebody, something about Jesus. But what, what is, how does my faith actually inform my work? In order to help address this, one of the things that I've been working on this year is to bring in a series of several different speakers over the course of the upcoming months in order to address different aspects of this topic and this issue that affects every one of us in terms of how does my faith get lived out in all areas of my life. Through, and this week, I'm very excited to have um, Dr. Art Lindsley here with us this morning delivering the message. Dr. Lindsley is from the Institute for Faith, Work, and Economics in, in Washington, D.C., and he is, um, he's, serves there as the vice president for theological initiatives with them. He's written multiple books, most recently one on this topic of the integration of faith, work, and economics, but there's another half dozen or more books that he's written um, on the case, C.S. Lewis's The Case for Christ, True Truth. He's written books, co-authored books with um, R.C. Sproul and John Gerster as well. And prior to his work with the Institute for Faith, Work, and Economics, he was the president and senior fellow at the C.S. Lewis Institute. And so excited to have him here with us this morning and to speak to this issue of how God has called us vocationally to engage in the creativity that God himself has woven into the created order. So please come and share with us this morning. Let me pray for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would send your spirit to open our hearts to the truth of your word and the story of what you are doing in this world and of which you have called us to be a part. In Jesus' name, amen. It's great to be here with you this morning and be able to speak a little bit about this uh, issue of work. And the, the title of the talk is The Call to Creativity. I think we are all called to be creative with the gifts God has given us, and that's right at the center of why God has made us. Uh, and I want to look at how work leads to a transformation in God's kingdom. But first, I want, to, want you to watch a short video. Uh, Hugh Welchel, who is our executive director, said uh, to our staff, make a video that's about if we, but not about if we. In other words, it talks about deeper principles of faith, work, and economics. So we'd like to start out with 
this particular video. Our lives are not divided into two halves, with one part being sacred and another part secular. Worship is not reserved only for Sunday morning, but for Monday morning as well. Every time we get out of bed and ready ourselves for the day, Every time we labor at a task, no matter how insignificant it may seem, every moment is a gift. Every moment belongs to the one who gave us that moment. There is a way that leads a man to flourish. It is freedom. the freedom to discover his true potential, to keep the fruits of his labor, to find fulfillment in his work. These freedoms are the right of every person because they come woven into the God-given dignity of every person. Where they exist, societies and people flourish. Where they are absent, there is only poverty. These freedoms must be championed for this is God's design for us, for the good of all he has created. You'll notice down there at the end there were three particular values, freedom, fulfillment, and flourishing. And those are the three core values. Freedom... Uh, I think is moral, political, economic, and religious freedom. And the opposite of that would be bondage or slavery. Fulfillment, knowing the purpose for which you're created, knowing your calling. And the opposite of that would be frustration. Or flourishing in personal and public life. And the opposite of that, as indicated in the film, is poverty. And so those are the three things we want to address. And there's a sense in which the more free we are to use our gifts, our creativity, the more it leads to fulfillment, and the more that combined, we're able to do that together, the more that leads to a flourishing society. So that's, uh, put, it, put it in a nutshell, our purpose. Uh, let me just start with a word of prayer before we uh, get into the main part of what I have to say here. Lord, thank you for this time and each person that's here, uh, image bearers of God that are created for a purpose to use their gifts. And I pray that the words of my mouth and meditations of our hearts might be acceptable to you, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Well, one of the things I've done in the past for many years, probably now 40 years, uh, is to do some vocational profiles. And I do that on the side, but 
I'm sure I've done hundreds, maybe even now thousands. I haven't kept track with every one of them. Uh, but what I do is go through a history of what people have enjoyed doing and done well and say at least three instances in grade school, junior high, high school, college of what you've enjoyed doing and done well and try to come up with a profile together to really uh, see what somebody's suited to do. Uh, But one of the questions I always ask in the beginning are dealing with some dream and vision questions. The question that I ask that's most interesting is if you could do anything you wanted to do, you had unlimited time, unlimited money, and you couldn't fail, what would you do? And I've gotten all kinds of responses to that question. Perhaps the most interesting one was I was at a retreat with some West Virginia staff for college organization. I was meeting, speaking, but also meeting on the side with various members of the staff, including a couple that was the leader of the group there, the college ministry in that area. And they had a young son there who was about four or five years old. And Ben saw me meeting with everybody else, and he said, when's Art going to talk to me? So I said, well, I would, and we got together before dinner, and I had a chance to do an interview. And I asked little Ben, I said, if you could do anything, what would you do? He was in this little kid's rocking chair, and he said, got a little smile on his face, a little gleam in his eye, and he said, I'd be a fireman and a coal miner. Now, I could already understand the fireman, because he had little red fire trucks he used to run around with. He had a little red hat, and he loved to climb. Uh, but I said, uh, that, that last one's kind of interesting. Well, why do you want to be a coal miner? I guess he'd been in West Virginia to the coal mines and got this little smile on his face. And he said, because you can get dirty. <laughs> now, only particular little boy makes it his main object and goal in life to get dirty. I, I have to say one more little story here on the side. Uh, one time I, t- I told his dad that and his dad said, yeah, one time we're out in the back. I don't recommend this for any of you kids here, but, but out, in the, out in the backyard, and it was after a big rainstorm, and there was a big mud puddle, and he saw Ben going out to, and he was looking longingly at that mud puddle, and his dad was standing up on the porch, and he said, Ben, don't, and Ben looked at his dad and looked at the mud puddle, and he said, Ben, don't, he looked at his dad, looked at the mud puddle, and then jumped head first in the mud puddle, <laughs> I don't recommend that. <laughs> His dad uh, laughed, probably disciplined him a little bit, but had to laugh at the same time. In any case, uh, other than that, I think the common denominator for what I hear is that I want my life to make a difference. I want my life to count. In fact, it used to be, it said in the baby boom generation, that the key fear that people used to have was public speaking, where you're standing up, people are analyzing you and criticizing you, that kind of thing. But now with the millennial generation, so those in college or slightly post-college, the greatest fear is that their life will not be significant, that they will not make a difference uh, in their lives. So it's it's a big and important issue. But the question is, how then can we make a difference? How then can we do that? I've uh, talked to one time a vocational interview with a woman who was right out of college. And she'd gone to a college where there's a lot of emphasis, and there's a good place for this, on social justice ministries. And she was telling everybody around her that she wanted to go to the most dangerous parts of Africa. So when I asked her if you could do anything you wanted to do, you had unlimited time, unlimited money, and you couldn't fail, that's what she said. I want to go to the most dangerous parts of Africa. So I proceeded, I said, great. So we went through the interview and looked at the history of what she enjoyed doing and done well. After about two hours of doing that, uh, There was nothing there uh, with regard to risk and adventure 
And there was nothing about Africa. And I, I just pointed that out to her. I said, well, I don't see anything here that's related to what you've said you feel called to do. And she broke down and wept. And she said, you know, I really don't want to go to the most dangerous parts of Africa. You know, and, but yet somehow she'd been made to feel that in order to justify her existence, in order to do something that really counted, that's what she needed to do. And I said, if you feel called to go to the most dangerous parts of Africa, by all means do so. I do it, do it with blessing, but don't feel you have to, to go there and do that in order to have your life be significant. Or in another case, I was down at the Ligonier Conference uh, with R.C. Sproul, and there was a truck driver that I met there, and he was kind of embarrassed when I asked him what he did being a truck driver, and he tried to justify what he did with it. Well, I spent a lot of time on the road listening to MP3s of sermons of Tim Keller and various other people, and, and then he also said, I also, when I am home, I teach Sunday school, which was both good, good things, but I tried to point out to him that you have significance in your role as a truck driver. You're part of a, uh, taking products from one place to another. You allow people, that, the producer that uh, has uh, the people there that produce to have jobs and be able to sell them at a particular place. And you're part of a whole economy of things. It has a great value, what you're doing, transporting things for, for the sake of the community, for the sake of business. And somehow he didn't get that. He didn't really see that that life as a truck driver was significant. Or I met another guy there, that, uh, a young man that uh, put on soccer camps for a living. But he said, yeah, yeah, but I, I, I sometimes go on missions with that soccer camp. And I, I do something that's significant there. And I, I don't like receiving money for, for, for doing what I do. And I, I tried to talk to him about that it's perfectly valid to make money and to uh, run soccer camps as, as a call from the Lord. And somehow he had not gotten that. Or, or another illustration, Andy Crouch, who's the executive editor of Christianity Today, uh, told an instance of one time in a church in Boston that he was attending. There was a, a woman that came up uh, that was uh, being congratulated and honored for teaching Sunday school for 30 years. And, of course, that's a great thing. She was worthy to be honored for that. But nobody ever mentioned that she had spent the last 30 years as well cleaning up Boston Harbor and doing something really significant that led to the health and well-being of that city. And so, but, but somehow that wasn't valued within the church. It's only, in quote, spiritual things uh, that were valued. And I think in many ways we've lost a, a, a view of the positive uh, role of work uh, in, our, in our lives. Here, here's a few questions. Is work a result of the fall? I'd say, no, we are created to work. Do we work only to evangelize and make money to support church and missions? Now, it's good to uh, evangelize at work sometimes. Sometimes it's inappropriate to evangelize at work, but sometimes it is. Uh, it's certainly valid to make money to give to the church and missions, but is that the only reason to, uh, to work? Is, that, is it a means to that end? And I'd say no, work is valid uh, in and of itself. Uh, is the ministerial profession a higher calling than business or other professions? I say no. Uh, as a matter of fact, just to, I have a reason for saying, putting it this way, a pastor is not better than a carpenter or other profession as well. But the reason I chose carpenter 
as uh, just recently in August with uh, Michael Novak. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. He wrote a, a classic book called The Spirit of Democratic Capitalism, and he's written, by the way, for that book, he got the million-dollar Templeton Prize that was given to him at Westminster Abbey. It was called The Book That Changed the World, really impacted the whole philosophy of business for a whole, like a whole generation. He's written 45 books. And so it was great and a great honor to have uh, dinner with him. And we talked about a lot of his relationships with past presidents. He'd known everybody on the left and right, all the candidates and all the presidents personally. He'd known all the popes you know, personally uh, for, for many years. But we asked him towards the end, uh, what would you want to say most to students or to just people in the church about faith in business or faith in economics? And he said, I would like to let them know that Jesus was a small businessman. That God sent what he said is the verbum Dei, the word of God. Uh, and for many years, he worked as a businessman. Uh, by our best guess, he would have started being a, a carpenter. That's the word that's used or a word, the Greek word that's used for that means not just carpenter, but can also be used for stonemason, working in various kinds of materials, and probably is more like a construction worker or a construction manager, uh, watching over all the details of things. But he uh, pursued this profession from approximately uh, uh, age 12 or 13, where Jewish boys were apprenticed, till he, did, he entered his ministry, his itinerant ministry. Uh, in Luke 4, it says, when he was about 30. That's the, the phrase that's used in Luke 4. So we'll say for 18 years, at least, he was a small businessman. Maybe 20 years, if it was 32 or 33, since it's just about 30. For 20 years, he was a small businessman. And what, uh, what Michael Novak was saying was, if God has sent the verbum day the Word of God, the Son of God, to be a small businessman for 20 years, then it must be valid to work in business. All right, and do that kind of thing. But often in the church, it's somewhat of a negative value uh, to be part of business. So that Jesus has sanctified work, particularly by sending Jesus in that kind of vocation uh, and calling. I think that what we need to look at is a framework that will allow us to be able to see in a larger way what we're created to do and to be. We're first of all created in God's image. In the prayer, there's a passage in Genesis 1, 26 to 28 that is called, in theological circles, the cultural mandate. Is, something that, is that something you're familiar with, the cultural mandate or the creation mandate? That's Genesis 1, 26 to 28. It's so important because it tells us who we are in the image of God and what we're created to do to exercise rulership and dominion over the whole creation. But first of all, we're created in God's image. Two times in Genesis 1, 26 to 28, it says people male and female are made in the image of God. And that's something that we can just say, but we don't necessarily grasp the full significance of that. The way C.S. Lewis wrote about it, and one of my favorite quotes of his, goes like this. He said, there are no ordinary people. You have never met a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, art civilizations, 
What are they? They are to our life as the life of a gnat. That the people you're sitting next to right now are going to live forever. The people you meet as you walk out, as you go to 7-Eleven or you go to a gas station or you go to McDonald's, wherever, they're people that are going to live forever. Therefore, they must be taken seriously. Everyone out there matters with great significance because they're made in God's image. The way C.S. Lewis lived that out is that he wrote personal letters to everyone who wrote to him. Uh, in fact, I, one time we had a conference for C.S. Lewis Institute, and an older woman now brought uh, a little letter about, about like this uh, that she, she had written to C.S. Lewis uh, on reading Lion, the Witch, and Wardrobe. And she'd drawn a little picture of a witch on a sledge. And he got this beautiful letter back from Lewis, particularly addressing her letter. But he answered everybody's letters that wrote to him. At the height of his popularity, it took him hours of every day to do that. Why did he do that? Well, I think it's because he believed that there are no ordinary people. You've never met a mere mortal. He also gave away much of his money. Uh, He got many honorariums for his speaking. Uh, He got a lot of royalties for his books. But he put, put, put all the money in agape fund. He even gave half of his rather meager Don's salary. He didn't become a full professor, tragically, until he went to Cambridge later in his life. But half of his meager Don's salary was also given away. And one time Walter Hooper asked him, why do you give away so much? And he said, what Christ has given so much to me, how can I not give everything? To him. So he was a real model of how he uh, affirmed this. In fact, one time he and Walter Hooper were talking about a man with, that was just incredibly boring. Uh, and the man, he said, fascinated uh, him, them by the very intensity of his boredom. And Lewis said, uh, you know, our Lord might, might well have said, as you've done it unto one of the least of these, my bores, you've done it to me. <laughs> And one time, by the way, the fate of this man, who was uh, Peeps, who was a librarian there at Modeling College, was in his hands. They had to renew his contract every five years. And so it was up for a renewal. And nobody particularly had any enthusiasm to renew his contract. They left it with C.S. Lewis to make the decision. He finally, uh, after thinking about it for a while, uh, renewed his contract. And when asked why, he said, well, we're all bores to someone. <laughs> so uh, Lewis really understood the dignity of people, and we should too, understand the massive dignity of each person you meet. And uh, the real value would be if, to communicate each day to everybody you meet something uh, that they're uh, worth something, that there's no one that's invisible to you as far as possible that people have worth and value and significance. Uh, We are called to creativity. The second part of that cultural mandate is not only we're made in the image of God, but we're called to exercise rulership and dominion over the whole creation. Uh, Only God creates something out of nothing, but we are called as image bearers of God to create something out of something. That's how I would interpret that rulership and dominion. We're to use our creativity to unlock or to develop the potential of the creation around us in the various gifts that we have to use. Uh, in other words, we are created to work. 
Dorothy Sayers put it this way. Uh, She said, it's more true to say that we live to work than it is true to say that we uh, work to live. Let me say that again. It's more true to say that we live to work than it is true to say that we work to live. Now, we do need to work to make a living. Uh, We do need to work to provide for our families, that kind of thing. But it's true, particularly, that we're created to work, not just working nine to five to make a living. Uh, It's more true to say, she said, it's more true to say that we play to work than it is true to say that we work to play. Let me say that one more time since it goes by kind of quickly. It's more true to say that we play to work than it is true to say that we work to play. And with many people in this culture, the idea of work to play is the, is the idea. If you're on the radio, countdowns to the weekend. We have a guy that's a gatekeeper in our office building, and every Friday he says, Happy Friday. And I notice on Monday he doesn't say, Happy Monday. <laughs> uh, and it's, we even have a restaurant that's devoted to this, uh, TGIF. What's that stand for? Thank God it's Friday. Okay, we all know it. But it's like the countdown to the weekend, that, that we live for the weekend. We live for vacation. We live for the summer vacation. We live for retirement, uh, that kind of thing, where, where we can play, play endless rounds of golf. At least that's the, true in some people's vision of things. And so the idea that work as something of value, something we're created to do, is lost in the process. I think people have been stuck in, in what's called the two-chapter gospel rather than understanding what I would call the four-chapter gospel. Now, I'm not preaching a different gospel here. Uh, the two-chapter gospel is, uh, is profoundly true. The two-chapter gospel focuses on uh, the fall and redemption in a personal way, that we're sinners we need to repent and put our trust in Christ for our salvation uh, and then receive him, put our trust in his death and his resurrection, and we'll be saved. And that's uh, the personal understanding of the fall and redemption in our own lives. And that's profoundly true. That's the gospel we preach. That's the charisma, the central message there uh, of the New Testament. However, we miss the larger context for that gospel, which includes a four-chapter gospel, not just individual fall and individual redemption, but creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Again, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. And I believe that, uh, that it's meant to be not just in a personal way, as the two-chapter gospel indicates, and again, that's profoundly true, but it's in the individual and corporate and cosmic levels. It's not just personal, but it's corporate and cosmic. Well, how's that the case? Well, particularly in the four-chapter gospel, in creation, we are called to be responsive. In fact, I often think about the image of God, at least in one aspect. It's not a full understanding of it. I'm a systematic theologian. And, uh, but, the, uh, but in any case, the image of God in one aspect is responsibility. The ability to respond appropriately to God. First of all, respond appropriately to others and respond appropriately to the creation around us. That's what we're created to do, to respond to God personally, to respond to others corporately, and to respond to God uh, and, to, and to the creation cosmically. Those are the three, three things I want. Well, the fall has come in and impacted all three. 
fall has impacted us personally. So, for instance, in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve hide from God. There's now alienation we experience between us and God uh, because of the fall, because of sin. Uh, We also have alienation from others. In Genesis 3, Adam blames Eve. Eve blames the serpent. There's now alienation between people, kind of pointing fingers, a breakdown in relationships. But there's also a cosmic perspective that even the ground is cursed. In Genesis 3.15, it says, Cursed is the ground because of you, and blood, sweat, and tears, I'm paraphrasing here, that you're going to do your work. So that there's a sense in which uh, the fall impacts us personally and corporately and cosmically. Somehow the very stuff of creation is impacted by the fall. And what I want to say, particularly, is that redemption impacts every area that the fall has tarnished. And that, that's what has been missed, by and large, by the whole evangelical church, except in occasional pockets. So that redemption is now personal and corporate and cosmic. Personally, that's what the two-chapter gospel gets right, uh, that Christ died for us, Christ rose for us, Christ reigns in power for us, and Christ prays for us. That's a passage from Romans chapter 8, and that's profoundly true. But there's more to it than that. Uh, the corporate is that we're baptized into one body of the church. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, we're all baptized by the one spirit into the one body. And there are some people that have caught that image of the body life and the place of, to work together as a community in the church. But the thing that's been almost always missing from the evangelical church is this last thing, the idea of the cosmic uh, dimension of re- redemption. that leads to the restoration of all things. I remember the first time when I was a young theological student, I heard R.C. Sproul talk about this. It just blew my mind. I'd never heard that before. That somehow redemption applies not only to us individually, but to the whole, to to the body of Christ and to the whole of creation. Acts 3.21 says that the ultimate purpose is the restoration of all things. Again, the restoration of all things. Or Another classic passage is in Romans 8, 19. It says, somehow the, the whole creation stands on tiptoe, waiting expectantly for the redemption of the children of God, because somehow the creation will participate in that very redemption. Now, even though that's a metaphor, I think it's profoundly true that somehow the creation will participate in, in the redemption of the people of God. So that, re, so that redemption applies personally and corporately and cosmically. And this idea that redemption applies cosmically means we take seriously the work that we do in this world. Uh, The fourth chapter is creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Fourth chapter is restoration. And there are two Greek words for new. One is neos, which means totally new. And the other is kainos, which means renew. I'm oversimplifying a little bit here, but... Almost every time the Bible uses the word new, guess which one is used? Kainos, renewed. Uh, A renewed heavens and a renewed earth. And that has profound implications for us. Uh, There's a book, Creation Regained, by Al Walters, uh, that puts it this way. God doesn't make junk, and he doesn't junk what he's made. God doesn't make junk, and he doesn't junk what he's made. Uh, Tim Keller particularly loves to talk about 
how the whole biblical narrative moves from a garden to a city. It starts in the Garden of Eden, and it doesn't end, as you might think, and some narratives out there in the culture uh, try to indicate that we ought to leave it like the garden. We ought to leave the garden untouched. It should be a garden to a garden, or as a famous song way back, that we've got to get ourselves back to the garden. Uh, somehow it doesn't just go, though, from a garden to a garden. It goes from a garden in the beginning of Genesis, finally to the holy city at the end of uh, Revelation. And it's interesting that the same tree of life that's in the garden in Genesis, in the beginning, is now the same tree of life is there in the holy city in the book of Revelation, where you have at least images or metaphors of a beautiful complexity that's developed, where where you have roads and buildings and beauty and gold and silver and precious stones. All of that kind of thing is there uh, in the new heavens and the new earth. Uh, There's a passage particularly I find illuminating in Revelation chapter 21, verses 24 to 26, uh, that talks about how in the end time that the kings of the nations, it says twice in this passage, the kings of the nations will bring the glory of the nations into the new heavens and new earth. Now, what does that mean? The kings of the nations will bring the glory of the nations into the new heavens and new earth. What does that mean? I think it means that somehow uh, the kings of the nations will bring something unique of the cultural productivity uh, of that particular nation and somehow offer it in the new heavens and new earth. So there'll be some continuity between what has been created here and what will be there in the new heavens and new earth. And I'm led to speculate, particularly reading N.T. Wright on a particular passage, uh, where he said uh, that uh, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 15, at the very end, 1 Corinthians 15, 58, that nothing we do in the Lord is in vain. Well, could it be somehow that everything we do in the Lord, even the most seemingly insignificant things, will somehow be carried over, I don't quite know what this means, into the new heavens and new earth? Uh, I don't know exactly what that continuity will be, but that certainly entrusts uh, value to what we do. Perhaps it's just reward, but perhaps it's more than that. Perhaps there'll be continuity between the best creative things we do in the Lord and what will be there in the new heavens and new earth. It'd be fun to just speculate as to what will be there in the new heavens and new earth. Won't do that right now. But in any case... uh, what are, what are some things we can draw from this as far as implications? Uh, six things pastors and lay people can do. First of all, watch your language. Uh, one time, Hugh Welchel, our executive director, was at a meeting with a seminary professor. The seminary professor was talking about how we in the seminary are teaching people for a higher calling. And he immediately interrupted him and said, we don't believe that. And the seminary president said, you're right. But somehow it's very easy, not only in our thinking, but in our hearts, to somehow think that if our children, I've got two boys, uh, pursue ministry or mission, somehow that's more valid than if they're in business or uh, uh, physician's assistant or doctor, whatever it is, uh, that they pursue. Uh, so that, but, but that's not really true. But that's very hard, not only to change your thinking, but in your heart to really believe that it's not better to be a pastor than to be a carpenter. And Jesus is our example there. Uh, pr- we also need to pray for people in professions. 
This is one of the things that, that the Falls Church, where I'm now attending and help out a lot uh, there, is that we have a committee with Oz Guinness, Steve Garber and I, and a couple others, to regularly meet on this faith and work area and make sure the church is following it through. And one of the things you'll hear in the prayers every week is a prayer not just for people in need, like people that are sick, but also people in professions, uh, like bless or watch over Mary, who's uh, a doctor, or Frank, who is a construction worker, or uh, Anne, who's a homemaker, whatever, uh, to really pray for people in ordinary professions of life, that they may, might be able to do that to the glory of God. That indicates implicitly there's a real value in what people do, not just at a point of great need, but along the way. You also have uh, place sometimes of interviewing workers, of uh, uh, times maybe having some lawyers come up, maybe on Labor Day or other times, or a doctor or a construction worker or a carpenter, and talk about the things that, that we do and how you can live out that profession to the glory of God, not just through evangelism uh, and giving money, but in other ways, to really using your creativity in that particular profession. You can also commission people for ministry in their work. You know, often when people are going off to foreign mission field, you have them come up and the elders will lay on hands and pray for them. Or you certainly have that when a pastor is ordained. But how about when somebody's entering or anywhere along the way, uh, being a doctor, a lawyer, carpenter, whatever, to lay hands on them and, and set them apart as someone who's sanctified, holy, uh, uh, to do their work to the glory of God. Why not do that? But when have you ever seen that? <laughs> Yet it's very appropriate, I think, that we do that, that kind of thing. Uh, stress that you can have a ministry through your work in any profession. I just think of one in particular in Washington, D.C., where I live. Uh, you have the profession of being in government. In Romans 13, two times it calls people that are in government ministers of God. And then a third time, a servant of God. So that must mean that it's a valid thing in and of itself to be a government leader or to work in government in specific ways. Now, that, that's sanctifying, but it's true in many other areas as well, that we can have a ministry in our work. That's the significance of the priesthood of all believers. And above all, we should encourage creativity. One of the questions I want to leave you with is this. I think within the evangelical church, there's been a focus on the, uh, the Great Commission, in Matthew 28, verses 19 following, to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Uh, and that's certainly valid to pursue, but it's often the great uh, commission has been used in total uh, with ignoring the cultural mandate. And I want to stress this, that the great commission does not cancel the cultural mandate. We're st still called to use our creativity with regard to the creation. And there's also the great commandment in Matthew 22, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Now, let me ask you, which is the most important? Uh, the cultural mandate to, to uh, use your creativity with regard to the creation? The great commission to take out the gospel to the nations? Or, or to love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself? I'm not going to answer that question for you. It's maybe lunchtime discussion. But all three are there scripturally, and all three need to be acknowledged and have their proper place in the way we think. Let's close in prayer.
Lord, thank you for this time where we can come together and wrestle with this idea of faith and work. Uh, We pray that we might use our creativity in whatever profession and calling we pursue, whether it's to be a student, uh, whether it's uh, in business, or whether it's in the military, whether it's in medicine, whether it's as a homemaker, whether it's as a construction worker or carpenter. We might do all we do uh, in glory to God, Uh, not just uh, for the purposes of the church, but for the purposes of your honor. In Christ's name, amen. As, as we prepare to sing, to continue to worship in song, all creatures of our God and King, we're going to be called to sing praise and to say alleluia. But allow your thinking to recognize that your work and your life and what you do is one of the ways that you sing praise and say alleluia. Please stand. <laughs> 